Welcome to the Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, cultural, and social implications of life in diaspora. My name is Ben Yanowitz. And I'm Zach Smerun. Today, we're talking to Rabbi David J. Cooper. He is Rabbi Emeritus of Kahila Community Synagogue in the East Bay area in California. Kahila is an independent synagogue and has been recognized as the leader in the Jewish community on issues of social justice. These include fighting for the rights of undocumented migrants and asylum seekers, as well as issues of land justice, as the synagogue is located on unceded Lashon Ohlone territory. I met David while we both attended the delegation organized by the Center for Jewish Nonviolence in Israel-Palestine. As you'll see throughout the interview, David does a really good job of demonstrating the connection between decolonial activism in Israel-Palestine as well as his activism back home in Berkeley. This was a really fascinating conversation to have as David should be seen as an inspiration. You will see he's done a really incredible job throughout his life organizing in Jewish communities as both an organizer and a rabbi. While David is an unorthodox rabbi, this conversation was incredibly helpful to ground the sort of work we're doing in Jewish religious traditions. For what's the point of being here if we're not moved to change our ways? It's time to live our praise. Rabbi David Cooper, it's really great to have you. I got to meet you a couple weeks ago when we were on the CJNV delegation together. We only got to have a couple one-on-one conversations, and I wish we got to have more of that because I learned a lot from you, and it was really great to be able to be in Israel-Palestine with a rabbi who's been doing the sort of work that we were doing for years, being able to have that rabbinical textual perspective, which I think really helped me ground what we were doing in Judaism and a Jewish tradition, often invisibilized. It's very easy for people to be like, oh, you're a self-hating Jew, you don't support Israel. Being able to ground what we were doing in Jewish sources, going back to the Torah and the Tanakh, was really impactful. And the fact you led a text study on Shabbat right after we'd done some pretty radical protests, I found that really powerful. And we talked about a lot of big concepts that are grounded in Jewish traditions that really I've still been thinking about and wrestling with. And I'm really grateful to have you here with us today to talk about some of those concepts. Yeah, just to say that when we're there in Israel-Palestine, especially we were there after the Flag Day, my concern, especially for the younger folks that were there in CJNV, was, you know, seeing all these people with Israeli flags and yarmulkes and tzitzis and marching through demanding the death to Arabs and things like that. I'm afraid people are going to say to themselves, well, if that's Judaism, why should I be Jewish? And so my feeling is, well, no, I want you to know that that's not necessarily Judaism. And I want us to come back to a place where we can locate our Yiddishkeit in the context of our resistance to the occupation, rather than to think that somehow or another, those folks marching through Jerusalem represent Judaism, and we're somehow or another outside of that. Now, we need to take the center back. I think that's really concrete and really part of why it was amazing to have rabbis there to emphasize the Jewishness of our delegation, because we weren't just there as activists, as people on the left that care about Palestinian lives, but we were there as Jews. And I think that was really important and really powerful because all the things that we went over that day were just showing how grounded what we were doing is in Jewish traditions. And it's just shocking to see the sort of stuff that we saw on Jerusalem Day, on Flag Day, and trying to understand that they also can ground what they were doing in Jewish traditions and sources and the different perspectives. It's like the 
old saying, you can have two Jews and three opinions. <laughs> we were at the demonstration where we were blocking Highway 60, and I had a sign that flipped over to two different sides. But one side said, fascism is not Jewish. Now, if the sign was a little longer underneath, it would have said, well, duh. <laughs> shouldn't need to be said. <laughs> exactly. So the other side said rabbi against racism. But I think it's important for us to be able to, to have an interplay between our social activism and our spiritual lives. Somebody sort of was asking me, there's this approach to uh, four worlds that Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi used to use, which was like the world of doing Asiyah, the world of feeling Yitzirah, the world of thinking Briah, and then the world of ultimate connection to the divine, Atzilut. And somebody was saying to me, yeah, well, you're so stuck in politics, like you're stuck in the world of Asiyah, just the world of practical doing. I said, oh, no, no. I said, politics is in the realm of Atzilut. It's in the realm of the ultimate connection. Why should I be bothered to do any of this stuff if I'm not finding myself in a place of Devekut, a place of connectedness? And that connectedness means connectedness to other people, to whatever concept of divinity I might have, but the idea that I'm compelled to do this from a really deep source rather than it's, you know, I got these politics and I am to be Jewish. Although that's not a bad place to start from. So basically what you were just saying, I think it really, it's clear that you're not an Orthodox rabbi, capital O or lowercase O. You're a very different kind of rabbi from what people might see in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods of New York City. And I was wondering if you could say a little about how you got to understand Judaism in the way that you do, and if it's connected, what brought you to become a rabbi? I grew up, my immediate family, my father served in a conservative congregation. He served as a rabbi, although he was not a ordained. But I mostly attended shul with my grandfather, who is Orthodox. So I grew up in a background that was partly conservative and partly Orthodox, and also thoroughly Zionist. I had a very deep connection to uh, my Jewishness as I was growing up. I went to a camp where we spoke Hebrew all the time. It was a Zionist camp. But one thing was that my larger family and my experience of doing Jewish stuff was always in an Orthodox context, although my immediate family was not Orthodox. So I meant I got sort of the best of both worlds. I got to really experience doing Shabbos in an Orthodox context, but that would be like one Shabbos out of every month. And the other three Shabbos, I would go bowling, <laughs> I would go to the movies. So it meant I could visit Orthodoxy and be comfortable in it but not have to be subjected to it. When I went to an Orthodox summer camp and we come out from the services, I would be commenting on like the poetry of the liturgy. I'd be looking at how the words are put together and how beautiful they were. And the other campers who are Orthodox would look at me and say, what are you talking about? It's just davening. You know, it's like, you're, and I'm treating it like it's, you know, Shakespeare. And I think it is. <laughs> it's good stuff. In any case, that meant I had the ability to stand outside of it and appreciate and enjoy it. But then when I was 16, my family traditionally went to Israel on the summer that you were 16. I turned 16 in June of 1967. So that meant 
that I was supposed to go. And then my trip was called off because there was going to be a war. And then my trip was back on again. And we uh, showed up in late June of 67, early July. And so on our second day, third day there, they took us over to see the Western Wall. Now, I'd grown up in all the shuls that I went to, the Orthodox and the Conservative. There were always pictures of the wall on the wall. And they all looked pretty much the same. Sometimes they were photographs, sometimes they were paintings, but it was usually on the right side of the picture and people, both men and women, praying up against the wall. And it was about 15, 20 feet. And then there were buildings facing the wall. So I knew that we were about to enter this picture that had been on the walls of all the shuls I'd gone to my whole life. We get there and it doesn't look anything like that. There is an open square area. I think at the time it was covered with gravel. And I said to the tour guide, didn't there used to be buildings across from here? Did the Jordanians clear this out between 1948 and now? And they said, no, no, we, we just did that a few weeks ago. I said, oh, so I'm 16 years old. So I asked the next obvious question. I said, yeah, well, what about the people who lived here? And he looked at me like I was a bit nuts. And he just said, what does that matter? And so that was the beginning of a turning for me, that I had grown up with a sense that my Jewish values were about concern for other folks. Even the Zionism that I had grown up with was one of being part of an anti-oppression process. And here I was watching something that was oppressive. And so I had some serious cognitive dissonance at that point. And on top of which, back in the United States, I was a teenager involved in the anti-war movement and was sort of learning to question things that were being sold to me. And up until that point, they never questioned anything around my Zionism. It was like, I wish the United States would be more like Israel. And then I discovered that Israel was a lot more like the United States than I had uh, realized, and that it also had a way, at least where I was beginning to see things, of disregarding the rights of people. You know, in the 1960s in the United States, I was very much exposed to the civil rights movement. And so now all of a sudden I realized that this Potemkin village version of Israel that I grown up with was beginning to see behind that facade. And that began a process. I'm not saying it happened immediately, but it was the beginning of me saying, now I'm going to have to pay attention to things and not assume everything that's being told to me is true, the same way I had to learn that in the United States as well. And so that was the beginning of the process. Somehow or another, I have to be surprised that it didn't affect my sense of my Jewishness. Since Zionism and Judaism in the background I came up with were so completely intertwined, you know, why did I not turn away from my Jewishness? And I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. And I think from then on, my relationship with Israel or my disassociation with Israel did not accompany a disassociation with my Jewishness. So my politics was here and my Jewishness was here, just like I was saying before, maybe that's a good place to start, but I don't think it's necessarily a good place to end up. I did not really have them integrated until the 1980s when I was in my 30s, when I had the opportunity to work with Rabbi Bert Jacobson, who wanted to start a radical synagogue, as he put it at the time, one in which it was okay to be critical of what was happening in Israel-Palestine. This was being organized about a year and a half after the Sabra Shatila massacres, which happened very much before the high holidays. And I think one of the things that completely floored me was going to a high holiday service that year and nothing 
nothing being mentioned whatsoever about what had just happened in Lebanon. To me, it was like, how on Day of Atonement can you not address this in some manner, shape, or form? When I heard that Bert was interested in trying to start a radical synagogue, I thought, well, you know, I want to raise my children in a synagogue atmosphere where I'm not the odd man out who's always going, yeah, what about the Palestinians? You know, I want them to be in a place where the values of the congregation were ones that were the kinds of values I wanted to raise my children under, and which integrated their Jewishness, their Yiddishkeit, with their political outlook. Now they're in their mid to late 30s, and all I can say is I think I succeeded. They are connected to their Jewishness, and they're quite radical. So I feel like that that was important for me. And I also think that as opposed to where I was growing up, how I had to deal with things, they never divided up between that somehow or another there's Judaism and there's political stuff. They are integrated. Not to say that everything they do that's political is specifically Jewish, but internally I see them as folks who didn't have to go through the integration that I had to go through. Did you become a rabbi after that or was that beforehand? Well, it was interesting when I graduated from college, although I didn't officially have a minor in Jewish studies, in actuality, it pretty much was. And so I thought, yeah, maybe I should become a rabbi. And so, what, 1975 or so. So I was 24, 25 at the time. Then I said to myself, okay, first of all, your concept of God is completely heretical. Uh, well, not if you're, I suppose, a follower of Mordechai Kaplan. And so there was that. And then I'm deeply critical of Israel. Who the hell is going to hire me? Part of me felt like, yeah, gee, I think I really should be a rabbi, but there's no future in it. And of course, then years later, I helped start Kiela Community Synagogue. And it was a synagogue that was started with a clear understanding that this was a place where it was safe to be against the occupation. Although in 1984, we weren't actually using that term yet. We didn't think of ourselves as anti-occupation. We thought of ourselves as being pro-Palestinian state. And of course, if there's going to be a Palestinian state, then there couldn't be an occupation. Later on, I think the terminology of occupation became more prevalent for us. So I helped start the congregation. Mind you, I had a lot of training as um, for service leadership. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah where I was the leader of the service. I had been a leader in junior congregations. So there was this new synagogue that only had a part-time rabbi. So I served in both a spiritual leadership role, although probably my most important role during that time was as the organizer of the synagogue, helping to put the synagogue together. Bert Jacobson, who had a great vision for the synagogue, was not a great organizer. And I would not have started the synagogue on my own, but I really took Bert's vision to do it. Bert and I have recently talked about how our lives would have been different had the other one not made our lives possible the way that they had emerged. I served the congregation both a organizer role as well as doing spiritual leadership and service leadership. Then I started the Jewish bookstore in Berkeley called Afi Komen. And during that time, I wasn't doing that much work for Kihila. But then then our associate rabbi left. Bert was somewhat incapacitated at that time, so I had to organize the spiritual leadership into a committee that would basically serve the rabbinical functions. And we did that for about two years. Around that time, my partner at Afi Komen was questioning whether I was really more focused on Kihila, the synagogue, or more focused on the store. And I had to give that some thought. And while I was thinking about it, I got a call from Zalman Shakter Shalomi, who's basically my rebbe. He was 
asked me, why wasn't I pursuing something rabbinically in regard to Kiela? I finally decided to apply for the position, which is quite a long story in itself, because it's not a great idea to hire somebody who's been a congregant to serve now as rabbi, especially if he hasn't been ordained yet. But I was hired for five years. I served without a license, during which time I was also enrolled in a fairly strict program for rabbinic studies, uh, received my ordination, and now I could be a rabbi in a congregation, which could be okay with my theology and okay with my politics. It really was a nice step in being able to come to a place of real integration for me in my life. We had, from the very beginning, a Middle East Peace Committee, which is now the oldest committee in the congregation, but I also put forward as the least successful committee in the congregation, <laughs> given its title. And um, and it also now has two other groupings. One is called Face to Face that uh, is essentially maintaining a kind of sibling-like relationship between the congregation and Omal Kher, village in the South Hebron Hills, just outside of Masafiriyata. They've been doing that for about a year. Maybe it's two years at this point. There's also a uh, Free Palestine Havara in the congregation. Although, frankly, the congregation's larger amount of political work has been more involved in immigration issues in the United States and homelessness issues. The congregation is just really kicking in terms of its ability. When we started it, we thought it might be a bit of a fly-by-night operation. Maybe it would last two years, maybe it would last five years. We were hoping it would last longer. We had about 70 households, which we thought was enormous. And now today, the congregation has a building of its own between about 550 households. And why do we have such a large number of households? Because people are looking for a congregation where they don't have to feel like their prayers are celebrations of Israel or Zionism. I walk into some shuls first thing you see is this Israeli flag. We will not have any flags, whether American flags or Israeli flags. I think there's something about the congregation that's anti-nationalist. When we have to use somebody else's space for a service like on high holidays, you know, somebody says, remember, get rid of the flags. And, you know, we're schlepping flags off of the stage. Uh, One year we forgot. (laughs) We got a whole bunch of people saying, why is there an American flag on the on your on Russia? <laughs> oh my God, we forgot to put the flags away. The congregation is turned into one that's a real community. It's not just that the people on the pulpit are political, and the congregation is organized on communal grounds. It's not based on a guru rabbi model or anything like that. That's a way that we not only integrated our politics with our spirituality, but also integrated our politics with the communal life of the congregation. The congregation is not organized on hierarchical designs. Reading from the website of the Kahila Community Synagogue, it's very interesting to see that it is quite different in terms of its general approach. There's been a little bit of news that's come from the Tzedek community in Chicago, which has officially declared itself anti-Zionist not too long ago. I have my own thoughts about that, coming from a very small community about creating synagogues and different congregations that have explicitly political approach especially when that sometimes comes from individuals who will say that they do not want to get involved in the mainstream institutions and not contest that approach over there. I wanted to ask, you've described a little bit about getting involved in the spaces of different congregations or different communities. What is that like locally? 
in your experience with other synagogues in Oakland or in the Bay Area? One thing is that we decided we really want to be part and parcel of the larger Jewish community. To be a separate apart from it, we didn't see as serving either our own communal purposes as a congregation, or for that matter, any political purpose either. Being against the occupation is to be regarded as something that should be outside the Jewish community. We've done actually a disservice to the very politics that we're involved in, that it's, I think, necessary for the Jewish community to recognize that a substantial part of us are seriously in dispute with what Israel is doing and has been doing for decades. And initially, we were regarded as some sort of kook formation, very fringe, except that we became more and more involved in the community. We began to get more and more congregants. And then we actually had, I think, head of the Federation mention, he thought that Kihila and the other alternative congregations that were neither Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, we don't have a Reconstructionist congregation here, probably because Kihila might serve that purpose, that we were bringing in more unaffiliated Jews than the established congregations were. That, but for us, the people who were members of our congregations would not be affiliated with the Jewish community at all. I helped start Kihila, but then after it was underway and there were a lot of other people who were involved with it, I then started with a partner, the only Jewish bookstore in the East Bay area, and that served the entire community. Subsequently, I was working with the Board of Rabbis to help establish guidelines for the Jewish cemeteries that were opening, that was opening up so that it was able to both serve the needs of the Orthodox and those of us who are not Orthodox and who wanted to be able to be buried with non-Jewish partners. And also that it would be open to not just non-Jewish partners that you're married to, but also same-sex partners as well, who are not necessarily Jewish to be recognized as somebody to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. And so we created these interesting ways of having the cemeteries divided into three. When a new cemetery was being formed, I worked with some very well-known rabbis in the area to create the new cemetery, which I then became identified with as the organizer. And so here's the community seeing Kiela Synagogue helping to create a green cemetery for the entire community, including the Orthodox community. And that was 11 years ago, and the cemetery is filling up and had to expand because there are so many people wanting to do it. The point is, is that Gihila has standing in the community that, for example, Beit Tikkun, that was organized by Michael Lerner, doesn't have as much standing in the community because it has not been as involved in the larger life of the community. I think we bring an understanding and Kila's activities, including our activities on Israel-Palestine, are covered in the local Jewish press and not as a, like a, an opinion piece against us. I mean, certainly there are a lot of trolls, a lot of trolls on Kila articles, but the articles have been fairly good, including one that I wrote after the first CJNB trip that I went on back in 2017. It was a well-received article that gets quoted quite a bit. So I think that would not have been true had we distanced ourselves from the community, or as it says in Pierre Calvote, you know, don't distance yourself from the community. And I think we thought that was extremely important. And I, there are people who resent us for our politics, but they cannot dismiss us 
as fringe or as somehow another outside the community. We've done too much for the community to be dismissed that way. I think that's really incredible. You really bring up a point about how you can take on, like in a way you expanded the Jewish community and in doing that, we're able to really force them to recognize that you are a part of the community. And that's something that here in Britain, there really isn't anything like that whatsoever. And it's so necessary. You read about, oh, there's not enough rabbis anymore. People aren't going to synagogue as much anymore. It's not just because people don't want to do that. One, there's money issues and synagogue rates can be really expensive. But also there's the fact that people feel alienated from the community. And that is from political reasons, but also there's a lot of different reasons. And the fact that you were able to grow to the size you grew, 550 families is a pretty huge synagogue. That's bigger than my reform synagogue. And my reform synagogue is the biggest synagogue in the area. It's really incredible because it's so important to be able to affirm that there is a different type of Jewish life that exists and thrives if we make it exist and thrive. And it won't happen unless we have people like you who can organize it and make it happen and fill that need that is there if we recognize it. You were asking before, Zach, about our synagogue in relationship to Brant's in the Chicago area. One of the things is is that we don't define ourselves as anti-Zionist. We don't define ourselves as Zionist either. We actually recognize that there is a spectrum of relationships to the term Zionism within the congregation itself. I don't think there's anybody in the congregation that is remotely an APAC type person at all. People in the congregation who still think of themselves as being Zionist are dead set against the occupation. They're pro-Palestinian rights. They just don't perceive of there being a contradiction between, for them, a Jewish homeland defined as Zionist and not having a Jewish state or having a Jewish state alongside a fully active, real Palestinian state. Folks who still regard themselves as Zionists, probably most people in the congregation don't even define themselves as Zionist or anti-Zionist or non-Zionist. And then there's a minority, but an important minority in the congregation that specifically define themselves as anti-Zionist. The thing is, is that whatever we're doing around these things, our nomenclature about what we're doing is not all that important. Same thing like in CGNV. There are people in our activities who are identified with J Street, and there are people involved with JBP, and there are people involved in If Not Now, and we're all working to affirm Palestinian rights to oppose whether you want to call it the occupation or apartheid. We're all in there doing this work together and putting ourselves on the line. And so we're not going to be engaged in this process of trying to disparage our nomenclature. And so we don't do that in Healy either. If you read our value statement, which is now actually needing to be rewritten, even as it stands right now, it's quite clear that we stand in a relationship to the integrity of all people, and especially in regards to Israel-Palestine. And are explicitly recognizing the congregation's relationship, whatever people call it, Zionism, is it's not a point of disunity between us, it's just a point of diversity. It's not diverse to the extent of being anti-Palestinian or being pro-apartheid. I think it's important to be able to bring different parts of the community into one synagogue if you're going to be able to actually do that sort of stuff. And saying, oh, we are officially an anti-Zionist synagogue immediately alienates large section of the community, even if they might consider themselves liberal Zionists, but actually end up agreeing with us mm -hmm. on far more than we would necessarily think we would just 
from using the language. And I think making the point about nomenclature that it doesn't actually matter that much, it's about what we really believe. And I think as this podcast is called The Jewish Diasporist, this is something we've been thinking a lot about because if we are just identifying ourselves as anti-Zionists, people that identify as Zionists are immediately like, oh, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to think about that. By putting forward a more positive vision of diasporism, which I would say is the antithesis of Zionism because it's focused on diaspora rather than a specific place, we're able to put forward a more positive vision that is not centered on Israel-Palestine whatsoever, but has an implicit connection to it. And I was sort of wondering how you guys as a community might relate to a concept of diasporism, if there is any discussion of something like that. I don't think that there's much of a discussion about that. I think it's more to look at the way we live rather than exactly whether we use the term diasporist. But I do know, for example, that my successor, I'm now Rabbi Emeritus, feels more disconnected from Israel-Palestine as a focus, even if it's against the occupation. For Dev Noily, the focus is, we live here. And I think that's a diasporist statement. And therefore, where our focus is, is where we are here. If we're concerned about oppression and the uh, disenfranchisement and the expulsion of Palestinians in Israel-Palestine, well, what about right here, where in California, where we have Native American tribes not recognized by the government? And so part of our congregation is very much connected to the work of the local Lijon village tribes that are active here. And we actually usually do our Tashluk service starting in the place that we, along with the tribes, are demanding become a park to recognize that this was a place where there was a, a large mound that was one of the centers of the tribes in the East Bay. They want to build a parking lot on it, and we've been working to try and stop that. Part of our membership is part of Jewel, Jews on Ohlone land. The idea is this is where we need to do our struggle. So that, to me, is is, you know, essentially a diasporist engagement that basically says, we're Jews here on the land of the Ohlone tribes. How do we now take responsibility for that right here in this space? I have not been as involved in that, but I go to the activities that they set up, especially I go to Tashlef, where we first go to the area there, and then we walk from there to the edge of the bay, and then we throw our sins into the bay at that point. So and that's an example, I think, of diasporist approach. Other is dealing with immigration. I mean, our congregation has so many people involved. Immigration issues as accompaniment to people who are seeking asylum. We actually have taken two-room section of our lower floor and have turned it into an apartment for people who need to have asylum. Initially, we thought it would be somebody who would be like staying in the space in order to avoid being taken by the authorities, but it's been used over and over again by people who have been seeking asylum and are allowed to be released into the community if they can give an address of where they're going to stay. And so our place has been a place where folks have stayed. And I would say it's often occupied by a family or an individual who is trying to come in. Now, that immigration work that we've been doing is one that other Jewish synagogues, congregations feel less apprehensive about joining. And so we actually have had our work has been joined in by one of the larger synagogues in Berkeley, a 
Reform Synagogue, also a Reform Synagogue in Oakland. You know, it was like, you know, Keela's doing this, we can join that. I guess it's another indication that just because we're radical in Israel-Palestine doesn't eliminate people from joining with us on things that they agree with us about. Just the fact that by not making Israel-Palestine necessarily the centerpiece of it, focusing on other social justice issues, it's really incredible that you're able to take a leading role then. Just in general, Reform Synagogues tend to be progressive but Palestine. And in doing that, you're able to basically show like, hey, we're the ones that are really leading this, taking that position, not necessarily doing it to say like, oh, we're the ones that are really doing this, you're just following us. But in doing that, gaining that legitimacy as people that are really there to fight for it and part of that broader Jewish community, that's really important. And I think really laudable as something that I'm impressed to see you're able to do that. And I really would love to see more communities to be able to do stuff like that. That seems so important. Well, the thing is, is that I think we back an integrity that other congregations, activists take note of. And also, I think there's even some envy for how communally organized and communally active we are. I think we're one of the first non-Orthodox congregations in the area that created a Hebra Kadisha and then helped teach other congregations about how to do a Hebra Kadisha. The other thing, too, is that just recently I've been told by one of our board chairs that they were approached by one of the activist groups within one of the reform synagogues that they would like to talk with me about possibly doing a statement of values on Israel-Palestine similar to what Kihil has done. It's going to have to be adjusted a little bit for their purposes, but why is that happening now? And I think it's because people are allowing themselves to be more critical about Israel in regards to, for example, Netanyahu's attack on the judicial in Israel. So now it's raising other issues as well. And so if we're not going to stand as a congregation that just supports Israel, then what are our values around that stuff? And so lo and behold, they find their way over to our statement of values. And so I'm supposed to get ready to hear from somebody there to talk about how we went about doing it, how transferable the process is to them. It was an interesting process, I should actually mention. We did survey the congregation to get a sense where people stood on Israel-Palestine issues with a series of specific questions, you know, two-state solution, BDS, um, a whole series of things. But we didn't just leave it as multiple choice. We actually left space with every question for people to add their comments about it. Nobody just clicked the buttons. It was like, you know, everybody had written things in to figure out what the survey told us. I had to read a book's worth of comments. I mean, it really was huge. But then I would get these things like saying, yes, I am against BDS because it's going to end up allowing Israel to feel itself being a victim, or I think BDS is going to distract from the issues. I don't think it's a good way for us to be able to move the process forward. And then somebody else writes, forward for Palestinian freedom. And then somebody else writes, I favor BDS because I think it's the best way that we can <laughs> proceed nonviolently toward creating a Palestinian freedom and uh, rights, human rights in the civil rights. Another person saying, I support a one-state solution because it's the only way that we're going to have uh, equality between Israelis and Palestinians. Next person writes, I favor a two-state solution because it's the only way that it's going to be able to secure equality for Israelis and Palestinians. I support a confederation because of the, each of their, <laughs> their policy things differed from each other, but the reasons for it were all the same. And so instead of trying to do a thing of Israel 
you know, Kehillah's position on Israel-Palestine. It's what are Kehillah's values on Israel-Palestine. And so we took those commonality of values and made those our value statement. We can argue as much as we want to about two-state, one-state, BDS, not BDS, or many other kinds of issues. The question is, where do we stand ultimately? And I think it's interesting to me that the first time that we began to look at the first wording of our value statement, first draft of it, was released on Yom Kippur afternoon. And people could come to a gathering and read this text and then begin to process it as a spiritual activity. And people came up with all sorts of problems and issues and appreciations for it that did then help create the second draft. But to have that come out of a spiritual process on the day when one is supposed to be most aware of where your responsibilities lay, where your responsibilities have not been met, where your responsibilities need to be met in a way that says, my place in the world has to be deserved in some way. And have I deserved this spot? Am I doing what's mine to do in light of all of that to then say, okay, Israel-Palestine, what do we as a community, where do we stand? Where's our al-chait? Where's our atonement, our determination to go forward? To do our politics in that kind of context to me is the only way I can do politics at this point. It has to come from a deep place of connectedness, a place of could, to use the more Yiddish, the dveikus. Adarabe. Just to make a quick point regarding possibility of coalition building between different congregations and movements around the issue of refugees, I think it's very interesting that in Britain, despite discourse in mainstream communal spaces regarding Israel-Palestine being much less developed, in my view, than in the United States, it's almost as if it's reached a level of self-consciousness that cannot be denied regarding the issue of refugees, that Jewish communal organizations, even ones that have been very comfortable with the current government including the Board of Deputies, have to speak out against policies regarding stopping boats and have to engage in some level of support and engagement with opposition to the government. There was a very public case of a Holocaust survivor and a refugee who confronted the Home Secretary a few months ago. So there's definitely potential to work on that even on the other side of the Atlantic. And certainly in California, if I'm not mistaken, the US Border Patrol have extraordinary power hours of detention and search within 150 miles of the border as well as the coast, which means that activity in California is in particular meaningful. I wanted to ask when it comes to this kind of reflection and these kinds of connections that can be made between different congregations and communities, what is the main basis that you give on this in Jewish liturgy? What are the main arguments that you can point to? I've seen a little bit from a statement that you gave to the Berkeley City Council a few years ago about the mentioning of the welcoming of the stranger and treating the immigrant equally, I think it is 36 times in the Torah, which seems like it would get the point across rather well. But how would you explain this to people on the outside who want to make this argument? One thing is, is that we ourselves, with just a few exceptions, are recent immigrants, maybe two generations, maybe three generations, the kids in my synagogue, maybe our 
four generations removed from an immigrant. Me, my father was born in the old country. My mother moved back to the old country when she was like five or six years old. And so she was both an immigrant and an immigrant. I think that our awareness of our experience says a lot. Back in the first round of the sanctuary movement in the 1980s, and Kila got started just around the same time as that earlier version of the sanctuary movement, we did an all-night vigil at a local radical Catholic church. One of the things we did that night was we showed the movie The St. Louis that was turned away. Jews trying to escape Germany, first to South America, couldn't get in there, they couldn't get in Cuba. It was interesting because there's a whole group of people who are both Jewish and not Jewish going through the night watching this movie together. Just the sense of, yeah, this is not just a Jewish story. This is a human story. And as a matter of fact, the rules that established the requirement to give asylum come from the story of Jews trying to escape from Germany and not getting an asylum. And so after World War II, these became understanding that country must, under international law, provide asylum. I think that our work on this is one that appeals, especially within the Jewish community, and then that our community has acted in times as a conduit for people to give serious thought to what the asylum process is about, what immigration is about, even apart from asylum. And somebody said, yeah, well, we can open up the country. People are trying to run away because they're afraid for their lives, but not because they want to make a better living. I said, why not? Why do we only make it for asylum purposes? My grandparents came here. One group of grandparents came because they were afraid of being oppressed by the other non-Jews in the area of Lithuania where they were. But then my other grandparents, they left Romania largely because they just wanted to have a better opportunity to make a living. And also they wanted to get as far away from their Jewish relatives as possible so they wouldn't have to live Orthodox lives. That was my secular half of the family. I come from a mixed marriage. <laughs> I think that our community, I think, is in a better position to be open about uh, immigration than many other communities that forget that they are also the descendants of immigrants, all of us except for the local native tribes. A point that you mentioned when we did the text study several weeks ago in Jerusalem, coming from Leviticus chapter 25, but the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine, as in God's. You are but gerim, residents with me. And I bring this up because I really, the concept of a ger or gerim, plural, really stuck with me, and that's a concept of like a resident alien, so someone that is part of a community but is still seen as an outsider within it, and the idea that the land doesn't belong to anyone. Like the U.S., it's not the American people's land, it's land. The people that have lived on it, you could say it belonged to them, but like realistically, no one can really own land, and we are really just living on the land. I mean, we have that perspective as Gayrim, as Jews in the diaspora, we are always going to be the scare in these countries that don't see us fully as belonging necessarily. But also this idea that from that position we should always embrace all Gayrim, we should embrace all these different migrant and minority groups and recognize that they all have a right to live here. And frankly, that's a very anti-nationalist position saying that actually the United States doesn't own that land. I mean, you could say God does, you could say people do, but it's land. At the end of the day, none of us can own it. It's going to be here. It was here before we were born. It will be here after we're gone. I raise this question because the idea that the land is mine, as in God, 
odds it was a really interesting point you mentioned it a couple times earlier as we were chatting about this conception of god and i was really curious to hear your own little take on that because you mentioned a couple different ideas and i was curious if you go into that a little bit i have my own perspective but i'd love to hear what you think about that just a second on gerim i tend to translate gerim as the inside outsiders those are people who come from outside who are now inside and then basically the torah says well how are you supposed to treat them you're supposed to treat them from their outsider status or for the fact that they're inside and basically the torah consistently says no you got to treat them as if they're inside and not with one foot out and one foot in but the status is still of an inside outsider and i think that applies to everybody on the planet no matter where they live even those who are native to a place we got here assembled from the elements of the universe through biological scenes we emerged into the universe at a certain point in history and we're going to leave it at a certain point we're all visitors we all come from some other place we didn't weren't assembled into the people that we are and eventually we will not be here anymore and so i think all of us are gay rim we're all gay rim to each other to me it's like somebody says you know you're my homie feel like saying no i'm your fellow exile your fellow gear we're all here on planet earth that's our homie but we don't own the earth that is one element that comes up in jewishness the torah according to our mythology was not given in palestine it was given in an undisclosed spot somewhere in the desert on the sinai peninsula the whole story of the torah is from book of exodus through to the book of deuteronomy there's a bunch of people wandering and then when they get to their land the rule is that they have to recognize from their own experience for your gerim in the land of egypt that you're not supposed to repeat the same process that's just a little bit of a thumbnail on that i think that hillel's statement don't do unto others that which is hateful unto you is really his trying to generalize about the treatment of the ger to the treatment of all human beings in its entirety because he's really taking it from the torah saying treat the gear as you would yourself and then he's turning around basically saying okay i'm not going to make this about the gear i'm going to make it about everybody anyway me and god so when i was six years old my father died and i do remember some relative you know taking me on their lap while i was uh, in my grief and telling me that now my father was with god and that god loved my father so much that god wanted my father to be with god and my reaction at that point although i didn't have the words for it was why would god need my daddy more than i do that put me on on a difficult relationship between god at that point then of course eventually i found out that god must have needed six million jews more than their relatives did <laughs> my feeling was i basically couldn't believe in a god that actually was involved in manipulating time and history that god had no excuse for his hurry and attention to the suffering of people in the world but eventually came to the place of deciding that god had a very good alibi which was god didn't have an actual cognitive existence that there was no guy up in the sky that could manipulate things and so but i did have the sense that the universe itself the history of the universe was like the biography of a single entity that maybe began with the big bang or maybe existed you know maybe the big bang is just the most recent manifestation of that i don't know i'm an agnostic on all that but i live in this universe that seems to have 
had its start with the Big Bang, which was neither Big nor Bang, but that's another story. And that it evolved over time into something that had elements in it, energy in it, eventually had solid planets on it. Eventually, one of those planets developed life forms. One of those life forms ended up being a self-aware life form, at least has some degree of self-awareness, and making the first time the opera that, as far as we know, that the universe had a chance to look out from these human eyes or other eyes of other animals and go, wow, isn't this interesting? And when I try and think of the universe without any witnesses, imagine the universe with nobody to witness it. It's almost like it's scary to me than the tree falling in the woods and nobody hearing it, therefore it doesn't make a sound. To me, that a universe would have no perceived existence at all is really scary. I mean, one of the reasons for me about not wanting us to die off is that the universe needs its eyeballs. Hopefully, there's someplace else where that's happening too, but we don't know about that. As far as I know, we're the only place where it's happening. To me, the whole universe itself has been this amazing process of evolution. It's evolved in physics, it's evolved in biology, it's evolving in sociology. To me, all of it is part of a single oneness that appears to be multiple, but underneath a single source and a single reality. In a sense, some of my theology is similar to Spinoza, except that Spinoza was a predeterminist. I actually don't think that things are necessarily predetermined at all. I think of Isaac Bashevis singer, he said, do you believe in free will? If you're a predeterminist, you don't really believe that there's free will because anything that you're thinking is the result of something previously that you thought and goes all the way back. A predeterminist will say even when I finished this sentence, it was determined from the minute that the universe came into existence. So Isaac Bashev singer was asked if he believed in free will. He says, of course I believe in free will, I have no choice. That's where I differ from Spinoza, but Spinoza's idea that the universe is a single entity is something that is not just to me intellectual, but it's deeply spiritual. And it means, okay, if I'm now a conscious part of this universe, which is so unusual in the universe to have places of consciousness, and where I'm seeing different consciousnesses oppressing other consciousnesses, does that put a responsibility on me? Jewish theology, I tend to be a little bit close on the issues of ethics to Emmanuel Levinas, who basically says, in the moment that you are in the face of the other, a responsibility descends upon you, a responsibility for the other, and to do no harm or to be as beneficial to the other as can be, period. And that essentially what we owe in that moment, our responsibility in that moment, exceeds the responsibility of the person that we confront or the people that we confront. That if it's the same as the people that we confront, if I don't owe them more than they owe me, then we have a transactional relationship. Well, you're not doing stuff for me, therefore I won't do stuff for you. According to this kind of ethical approach, a responsibility is descended upon you. And the question is, are you going to disregard that responsibility? Are you going to go against that responsibility? But whatever you do, the responsibility is there. To me, the one of the ways that the universe has evolved is with consciousness and conscience. And so I want to 
operate from that kind of place. Just because I don't think there's a God that's dictating to me what my ethics are supposed to be doesn't make me feel less under the omalchut shamayim, underneath the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. I'm still yoked to that ultimate, whether I see that ultimate as being a conscious entity or not. And I don't see there's that much of a difference between me and somebody else who feels a conscious God's presence, a conscious God that wants them to act in a way that's ethical. But then there are people who believe in a conscious God who think that that God is telling them to screw up other people. I find myself in a safer place if I don't believe in a conscious God, but I do believe in a God's eye view. That is to say, if I'm standing and looking at the world only through my own interests and only from my own place, then I'm going to have a limited ability to operate in this world in an ethical way. I don't do it for myself, or I'll do my family. I'm still in a selfish place. Okay, now I'll do it just the Jewish people. That doesn't do it. Just even the in the United States, USA, USA. That doesn't work either. I have to go to a spot that's beyond that to look at where I see right and wrong, where I see justice and injustice. And that place is the God's eye view. And I could be off and be mistaken in what I think that God's eye view might be at any one moment. But that doesn't free me the responsibility of trying to find my way to that spot, to trying to operate from that place rather than from operating just out of my own self-interest. That's where my ethics and my theology or atheology, whatever you want to call it, intersect. I would to that add Martin Buber, who's a contemporary of Levinas. I understand God in a very similar way, but add the idea that there's God in the I-thou relationships, I-thou being transformational relationships as opposed to the transactional relationships of I-it relationships. For an I-thou relationship, both partners are mutually transformed through that relationship. And I do believe that there is God in those I-thou relationships. And that's something between people and non-human kin. I think it's definitely another way that I understand God in a very material way that doesn't need to be some metaphysical sky daddy that decides who lives and who dies. Let's make an interesting comment, I think. I think the major difference between Buber and Levinas from where I'm coming from is that Buber sees it in terms of relationship. Levinas sees it in terms of ethics. The thing that's weird to me is that in regard to Israel-Palestine, Buber tended to act from a Levinasian kind of ethics around it, whereas Levinas himself did not really understand how his own philosophical approach pertained to the relationship to the Palestinians. <laughs> so in a sense, I think that Buber was more of a Levinasian than Levinas was when it came to Israel-Palestine. Wow, that's a fun little point to wrap up on. I'm very familiar with Buber. I've read a lot of his stuff. He had really incredible politics around Israel-Palestine. I see him almost as a prophetic figure because he was there in 1921 arguing to the World Zionist Organization that actually we should re-found Zionism on a basis of Jewish-Arab cooperation. And they ignored him and history was history then. It's been really a great pleasure to chat with you, David. I'm really grateful that we got to have you on, and I really hope that this isn't the last time we have you on, because I really do think you have such an incredible perspective that really helps us fully ground what we're trying to do in Jewish, not just traditions, but also Jewish communities. The sort of organizing you're doing and have done throughout your life is really inspiring, and I really hope that this podcast can help open some people's eyes to the sort of alternative Jewish organizing that is there to be done, 
because it's not something that is just going to happen. And the sort of organizing that you've done and really pioneered through your lifetime, I think, can work as a template for the sort of community organizing that is so important to be able to change our communities in order to build the world that we'd all like to see. So really, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's been a great pleasure. My pleasure, too. You take care. We are carrying the stories of the ones who came before. What stories will be told of us when we are here no more? We commit ourselves to action. It brings meaning to our days. It's time to live our praise. It's up to us to own the vision. We are an answer to a call. It's up to us to live the words we speak for the benefit of all. It's up to us to bow down deeply. There's a broken world to raise. Elaine Olishabea, it's time to live our praise. Elaine Olishabea, it's time to live.